please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. As you turn to Luke chapter 10, a special Mother's Day to all of you mothers and wives and daughters. It's a day we really honor the the women in our, our church and are just so grateful for the, the ministries that, that you do in our church. And of course, a, a special Mother's Day greeting to my mother. I'll be calling her this afternoon, maybe Skyping with her. But I'm also saying Happy Mother's Day to her now, so that in a few weeks as she listens to this message in her car on the CD, it's like I'm an extra special son. So <laughs> it's kind of my custom to, to do that. So Love you, Mom. Glad, uh, grateful to God's uh, work in your life and in your ministry to, to me. And so I encourage you all to do wonderful things as God gives you the ability to do so today for the, the women in your life. Well, please uh, stand with me as we look at Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. And as we think about joy and a sovereign God and Mother's Day. I'm sure that we have great joy that a sovereign God has provided us with the mothers that he, that he has. Here we see in verses 17 through 24, joy in a sovereign God. Let's read these verses together. Remember the disciples have just been out on this, the 72 followers of Jesus have just been out on this, this mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then verse 17 says this, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning, and let's pray as we turn our attention to the text. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you. We're so grateful to you for for many things, and we're grateful to you for the women that are in our lives that you have sovereignly placed there. And Father, some of us have very good relationships with moms, and there's great joy in that. Others of us have had relationships that we wish were different, and recognize your sovereignty in that as well. I pray that you'd give us great joy and contemplating your work in our life and in all things. We pray that you would bless those among us who have been called to the ministry of motherhood. We pray that you would hurt, uh, help those who are perhaps hurting this morning as they, as they contemplate their desire to be engaged in this ministry and have not been able to. We pray that you would, you would comfort them as well. We pray that you would help us to 
honor you as we look at your word this morning. Change our hearts. We pray this in the gracious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. According to legend, in the ancient city of Telmasus, an oracle one day decreed that the next man to walk into the city of Telmasus, leading an ox cart, was to be proclaimed king. A short time later, a man named Gordius, a peasant farmer, came into the city leading an ox cart. The citizens surrounded Gordius and proclaimed that peasant farmer to be king of their city. And Gordius, in honor of the gods of the city, took his ox cart to the temple and tied the ox cart to a pillar of the temple using a very intricate knot. In fact, the knot was so well tied, was so intricate, that no one was able to untie the knot affixing the ox cart to the temple. Years passed, decades passed, and no one was able to untie the knot. In fact, as the centuries passed, legend had it, the story grew, that the person that could untie the knot, that could solve the knot, could conquer the world. And so, the story goes, in the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great came to the city of Telmasus, and he heard about this knot, and he came and he stooped down and tried to figure out the knot and how to untie it, and finally, in frustration, he stood up and he said, no one said how it had to be untied. He pulled out his sword and sliced the knot in two. Sometimes, we as believers view God as kind of a, a Gordian knot. God is somehow some, some riddle to be solved, some puzzle to figure out. We take a, an infinite God and in all his complexities, we take a, a sovereign God and all his, his majesty and believe that all these attributes of God that are so far beyond our comprehension, instead of eliciting worship from us as they should, we look at his, his intricacies and his complexities and we simply view him as some sort of puzzle to figure out. Instead, Scripture tells us that as we contemplate the attributes of God, our response should be one of worship. God is a God to be worshipped, not a mathematical formula to be solved. I believe in, in no area is this perhaps more pronounced than in the area of God's sovereignty. The term sovereignty refers to the fact, the biblical truth, that God has complete authority over all things. The idea of sovereignty refers to the truth that God has authority over all things. There are sovereigns in this world. We have a, a president that has certain authorities that God has, has given him. We have parents that have certain authorities that are sovereign over certain realms that God has entrusted to them. But God himself is a sovereign over all other sovereigns. God is, is sovereign in a way that no other sovereign is sovereign. God is sovereign in such a sense that his authority is absolute and complete. When we talk about God's providence, sometimes we also use a word called, uh, as we talk about God's sovereignty, we also sometimes use a word called providence. 
providence describes God's outworking in his created realm that he has complete sovereignty over. God has providence in that he does what he decides to do. All things are held together by God, and nothing happens that God doesn't decree should happen. And God in his sovereignty exercises his providence over all the created realm. Everything fulfills his ultimate purpose. Now, sometimes as we contemplate that truth, we become very concerned because we think, okay, if if God is is sovereign, how does that affect my humanity and and how does that affect my free will and and, and how does that interact, how does God's sovereignty interact with the the, the truth that that I'm I'm a free agent? God's sovereignty comes into conflict, it seems, with our human responsibility, and there are are great tensions that exist in our mind, and our temptation, I believe, our temptation can be to see this this tension between the, the truth that God is sovereign and absolute over all things, and the fact that we're human beings responsible for the choices that we make, that tension can lead us to the temptation to try to figure it out and, and tie a nice little neat bow on it and, and say, well, I've, I've got it figured out. We take out our theological sword and just slice that Gordian knot and say, I've got God and his sovereignty all figured out in this nice little formula. I don't believe that we can do that. In fact, in Scripture, as we see God's sovereignty played out, we see in Scripture that we are not to respond to the truth of God's sovereignty with arrogance. We're not to respond to the truth of God's sovereignty with fear. We're not to, just to respond with, with fatalism, saying, well, I guess God's got all this planned out. There's nothing I can do. No, here's what we see in Scripture, specifically in the text that we're looking at this morning. As we contemplate this incredible truth that, that God is sovereign over all things, that God works out his providence as he wills, as we contemplate that truth in this text that we're looking at this morning, Jesus says that our response should be a response of joy. As we ponder the mysteries of God's inner working with humanity, our response should be a response of joy and worship. This morning, I believe the central idea of the text is this, is as we contemplate God's decision to deliver us from our sins, it demands that we delight in him. As we contemplate the incredible, incredible biblical truth that a sovereign God rescued us in our sins and delivered us and allows us to exist in relationship with him, our response should be one of worship and delight and joy. And so this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24, we're talking about joy in a sovereign God. And we're going to look at three reasons that you and I should rejoice as we contemplate the sovereignty of God. Let's look at the text together, and we're going to look at this first reason that we should rejoice. Number one, we should rejoice that our sovereign God wrote our names in heaven. Number one, rejoice that our sovereign God wrote our names in heaven. And if you're keeping a time this morning as to how much time we spend on each point, 
uh, probably will spend the most time here, and some of the things we learn here will apply to the other points that we look at this morning. But number one, rejoice that our sovereign God wrote our names in heaven. Look at the text with me, if you would, verse 17. Remember, by the way, where we are, what's happened in verses 1 through 16. These 72 followers of Jesus have been appointed by Jesus to go out on this mission. He's told them what they're to proclaim. They're to proclaim the gospel of God, the coming kingdom of God. They're to proclaim repentance and faith in Jesus. And as they proclaim that, Jesus says some people are going to respond with hospitality. They're going to receive your message. But, he says, some people are not going to respond to that message. Some people are going to reject the message of God's coming kingdom. And so he tells them what to proclaim to those people who reject that message as well. Now, in verse 17, we see the disciples, these 72 followers of Jesus, responding to what's happened. They're coming back. Verse 17 says, the 72 come back to Jesus. They returned with joy. They're excited. They're pumped up. Things have gone well. And what do they say? What's the source of their joy? They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, here's what they're Here's what they've got right. They're first of all saying, Lord, they're recognizing Jesus' authority. And they're saying, uh, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Again, recognizing that he's the one that's ultimately responsible for this ministry that they've undertaken. But they're pumped up, they're jazzed, they're really juiced by the fact that even the demonic realm was underneath their authority as they were underneath Jesus' authority. It was subject to us in your name. And then they stop. That's the source of their excitement about this ministry that they've just engaged in. So imagine, here's a scene, 72 guys coming back. They're talking to Jesus and say, Jesus, even the demonic realm is subject to us in your name. And Jesus responds thusly in verse 18. And he said to them, he says to the 72, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So he's affirming, he's validating what they've just said. Yeah, what you've said is correct. First of all, it is true that the demonic realm was subject to you. As you engaged in this ministry, he says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Brings to mind uh, Isaiah 14, 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And so in a very real sense, the disciples' ministry as they proclaimed the kingdom of God had spiritual impact. It affected the demonic realm. Satan, Jesus says, was falling like lightning from heaven. Your ministry was impacting spiritual forces as people responded to the gospel. So that's correct. You're right, Jesus is saying. Furthermore, Jesus says, not only are you right about the demonic realm being subject to you, you're right that you did this under my authority. What else does he say? He says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So on this mission that they were sent, Jesus is right. There were real effects in the spiritual realm, and you did this ministry underneath my authority. 
Now, by the way, as we think about this, this uh, thing that Jesus says here about the authority that he's given the disciples, I think there are some similarities and some differences to the ministry that you and I have. Some people have read this verse in Jesus' words here and said, well, see, uh, Jesus gave these 72 followers authority over the demonic realm and authority over uh, the, the physical order. They could walk on serpents and scorpions and not be harmed. Therefore, we have this same authority. And I think there's, there's some differences here, right? <laughs> the difference is that God has not specifically described that we are to engage in a ministry like the 72 disciples, the 72 followers of Jesus did here. But there is some points of, there are some points of similarity. Just like the 72 followers of Jesus, we can be confident that when God tells us to do something and we do it, we need not fear the demonic realm. Now, I have personally been stung by a scorpion before, and uh, it, it did hurt. <laughs> and I don't believe that Jesus, that means Jesus' words are not true here in verse 19. But what I think it means is that even though I don't have this exact same explicit dis, uh, direction that Jesus gives the 72 here, I still can have confidence that as I do the things that Jesus has called me to do, proclaim the gospel, minister in the local church, train my children to know and love the Lord, I can have confidence, I can be assured that the demonic realm cannot do that which God does not want it to do. I have the same confidence and God's authority over the demonic realm. Now, Jesus is affirming what they've said thus far. In other words, you're right, you had this ministry, and you're right, it was done by my authority. You're right, and this is still true today, you're right that the redeemed play a crucial role in overthrowing the power of Satan in this world. It was true then, it's true today. But, <laughs> nevertheless, Jesus says. Very interesting. You're right. Nevertheless, what does he say? Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are are written in heaven. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, yeah, the ministry that you just engaged in was awesome. You're right, and you're correct in, a, in seeing that the demonic realm was subject to you, and you're right as people responded to the gospel, true spiritual change was being enacted, and that's awesome. That's, that's incredible. However, your ultimate source of joy should not be in that ministry. Your ultimate source of joy should be in the fact, found in the fact, that God has chosen you, he's elected you, and written your name in heaven. What does that mean that God has written their name in heaven? It gets to the idea of something called election, and we're going to talk more about this book that's in heaven in just a moment, but let's first, let me define some, some theological words that we use when we talk about this idea of God writing one's name in heaven. One term that we use, we've already talked about, the idea of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty refers to God's authority over all things. Another term that we've already used is God's providence. That describes God outworking his 
sovereign plan in human affairs. Another word that we use when we talk about this issue of God's interaction with his creation is the word predestination. Predestination. Now you may say, oh, I, I don't like predestination. I don't believe in predestination. Well, that's very problematic for you uh, because the word appears in Scripture. Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can look at it. Romans chapter 8, you also find it in Ephesians chapter 1, several places in Scripture. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, what confidence can we have that that's the case? Well, because, he says, those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he, also, he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what does predestination mean here? What does to be predestined mean? Predestination refers to the, the biblical truth that before time began, God, the word literally means decided beforehand, how he would respond, how he would work within humanity. Predestination refers to God's predetermined plan with what he would do with human beings. Now, the word election also occurs in the book of Romans. I believe we see it in, in Romans chapter 8 as well, but for, it's explicitly mentioned in Romans chapter 9. For example, Romans chapter 9, verse 11 so, talking about Jacob and Esau, it says, though they were not yet born and did nothing either, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, she was told, the older will serve the younger. In other words, election refers more specifically to God's calling of individual human beings to salvation. So, God's providence is very broad and general. God's predestination refers to, to all of humanity, God's predetermined plan for humanity. Election refers to God's specific calling of individuals for salvation. Before you, have, you and I have done anything good or bad, before the world of cause and effects enters into, into play, God decides beforehand who he will call and then does it, calls them as it works out in salvation history. Now, that's deep stuff. And whenever we talk about these biblical truths, our temptation can be to look at this like a, a Rubik's Cube. We've got to solve it real quick. We've got to come up with some sort of formula to, to understand all the complexities here. And I, I appreciate what D.A. Carson, a great theologian, has said. He said, God's this, this interplay between God's sovereignty, his election of us, and, and his, his sovereignty over the created realm, this interplay between God's sovereignty and, and our human responsibility is, is not a problem to be solved. Instead, it's a, a glorious biblical truth that should cause us to study it and to study God and his attributes and worship him. Now, I want to look at this book in just a moment, but let me take you to just a couple scriptures that should blow your mind. Not literally, that would be very messy, but figuratively. Just 
just cause you to, to go, what? I don't understand this. And lead to worship and joy. One very, uh, very familiar passage that we've turned to often as we describe this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibilities in Genesis 45. In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph has just revealed who he is to his brothers, his brothers that sold him as a slave. And in Genesis 45, verse 4, he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into, into Egypt. So his brothers chose to sell him as a slave, and his brothers are morally culpable for that decision to do so. And, he says in verse 5, now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, the brothers are culpable, they're responsible for this decision that they made, and at the same time, Joseph says, and God did it. You did it, and God did it. Genesis 50, just a few chapters later, again, this idea comes up. The brothers are scared that their dad dies. They're like, man, it's payback day for us. And so they, they tell Joseph, uh, hey, dad said to forgive us. Just wanted to let, that, you, know, let you know. And Joseph says uh, this in verse 19. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You decided to do something wicked to me. You're responsible for that, but... God meant it for good. Here's another passage that just is incredible. If you turn over to Isaiah, Isaiah is after the book of Psalms, very uh, long book in the prophetic section of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 10, God is speaking to Assyria. And he says in verse 5 of Isaiah 10, he says, O Assyria, the rod of my anger. In other words, I'm using you, Assyria, to be my rod. And if you'd asked Assyria, hey, Assyria, are you, are you under subjection to a sovereign God? Are you under subjection to Yahweh God? Are you carrying out Yahweh's purpose as you go about conquering? Assyria would say, what, are you kidding me? In fact, that's what, uh, that's a Daniel Bennett translation, are you kidding me? Uh, that's not in the Hebrew. Uh, but here's what happens in Isaiah. Here's what Assyria does say. Assyria says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like, Samaria like Damascus? In other words, we're sovereign. We know we're doing what we want to do. But what does God say? God says in verse 13, by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. Verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Now, let's, let's get back to this book. That's the tension. God, sovereign over all things, people responsible for their actions, and Assyria is responsible for the wickedness that they're done, they've done, and God is going to judge them, and yet God says at the same time, I'm sovereign over you. If you can put a nice little bow on that and sum that truth up, like a little Rubik's Cube, I'd, I'd love to see that. But our, our tendency 
is to take our theological sword and just hack biblical truth to shreds. God's sovereignty is an incredible truth that as we contemplate its outworking in our life should bring us great delight in him and joy and worship. Let's return to that book that Jesus describes in verse 20 of Luke 10. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There are many passages in Scripture that talk about this this wondrous book. And in this book, before the beginning of time, God has written down the names of those whom he will redeem. He's completely sovereign. He wrote those names down apart from any works that you and I would do. And yet, in Scripture, what we also see, and this is the complicated truth, we also see that there is a responsibility that those whose names have been written down, there's a responsibility that those individuals have. There's expectations that they will continue in that process of salvation that God has sovereignly worked out, that God is going to sovereignly equip them to work out that salvation. They're going to respond in faith to the gospel message. They're going to continue to persevere in obedience. Let me read you some verses about this, this, this beautiful book. Isaiah 4.3. Isaiah 4.3 says that those who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, set apart, sanctified, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, says there will be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Who? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Philippians 4, 3, Paul talks about Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3, 5 says the one who conquers will never be blotted out of the book of life. Revelation 20, 12, excuse me, 2015, says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.7, speaking about God's heavenly kingdom, nothing, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so Jesus says here, What should you be pumped about? What should really get you responding with delight in God? It's not the individual ministries that you've been called to, as wonderful as those things are. Your ultimate source of joy and wonderment and awe and delight should be, I have been written down in God's book. My name is known by a sovereign God, and he has elected to bring me into relationship with him. That should cause us worship for eternity as we contemplate that amazing truth. Uh, This morning, I was uh, like the good son that I am. I was going to my mom's uh, Facebook page, which apparently is how our family communicates now, Facebook. All major family announcements are, are posted on our Facebook walls for the whole world to see. Is this thing on still? I should probably turn that off. Diane, let's edit this out of the, uh, the, the broadcast. Thank you. Um, 
on Facebook this morning, my mom had, had posted a beautiful little blog post about, about our, our family and just memories that she has of our, of our chil- of her children and things we've done together. And I, one, one thing caught my eye. She mentioned the movie uh, UHF, okay? Now, some families can say, well, we watched, we watched uh, Citizen Kane together. We watched Lawrence of Arabia, some sort of classic movie. Our family watched, our family's movie is a Weird Al Yankovic movie, okay? Uh, not exactly high-class cinema. Now, in the movie, uh, UH, anytime the main character's name is, or the main star's name is Weird Al, you know, you're not dealing with uh, too highbrow material. So, uh, in the movie UHF, there's this scene where the, the janitor has to fill in for a TV show. And so he comes and it's just a great success. And the station manager, Weird Al, says to the janitor, How would you like to do that every day? Be this, this television personality. And the janitor says, Well, sounds great, but can I still be a janitor? In other words, not understanding that the great opportunity that's offered him here. Sometimes when it comes to our relationship with God, we don't grasp the fullness of what he's offered us. It's not that you and I were just really great people that God has redeemed. The fact that we're able to even be in a relationship with him is a sign of a sovereign, loving God. Think about whenever I I met uh, my wife in high school or or even earlier in, in, in elementary school and junior high. We knew each other, and, and as we started uh, dating in high school, I, I had no idea that she'd make a really great wife. I saw she's really pretty, she's smart, she loves the Lord, fun to be with, right? We got married after, right after college, and as we, after we got married, I realized a little bit more fully wow, I had no concept of, of all that it takes to be a great wife, but, but boy, she is a fantastic wife. And then, as I think about this today on, on Mother's Day, she became a mom. And if I thought I had a great wife, even in a great wife, I had no idea the qualities that you needed to be a great mom, and she had those in spades as well. I had no idea the, 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 the deal that I was getting when we got married. And she had no idea the deal that she was getting. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> Why do we rejoice in the Lord? Sometimes we rejoice in some things that aren't the ultimate, right? The ultimate thing here is that not that, that God allows us to do this ministry because we're so great and God lets us do this ministry. No, no. The amazing thing is we rejoice in God's grace toward us that we were even written in, our names were even written in heaven. God's sovereignty here causes us not to be arrogant, but to rejoice in his mercy. Let's look at the second truth here. Second th- reason that we should rejoice. We should also rejoice that our sovereign God revealed truth to us through his Son, Rejoice that our sovereign God revealed truth to us through his son. So they've just been told this by Jesus. He's offered this corrective word. Then we come to verse 21, and it says, In that same hour, that same time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says with the 72 there, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that familial relationship and that sovereign recognition, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, sovereign God, that you, and listen to how God's sovereignty plays out here, and that Jesus thanks him for, 
I thank you that you've hidden these things, these truths from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You can imagine being one of the 72. Like, what did he just, did he just call us little kids? Thanks, Jesus. I thank you, he says, that you've hidden some things and revealed some things. I thank you that you've hidden some things from the wise and the, under, and the understanding, and I thank you that you've revealed them to little children. What is he saying there? He's saying that God in his sovereign plan, the sovereign God of heaven and earth, has decided to conceal some truths from the wise and knowledgeable people and reveal them to the ignorant, to the small-minded. I just called you small-minded. 1 Corinthians 1 says this has the same idea in it. In 1 Corinthians 1 Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why does God do this? Why does God in his sovereignty choose to conceal truth from some people and reveal it to others. He does it to shame human pride. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to allow some people to understand the truths of Scripture so that there's nothing in themselves that they can boast in. I can't say I understand Luke chapter 10 because I'm smarter than other people. I can't say I grasp the gospel because I am super intelligent. And if you were as intelligent as me, then perhaps you could understand the gospel as well. I can't boast in that. You can't boast in that. We can only say a sovereign God chose to reveal his truth to us. And I have nothing in myself that deserves to know the truth. I have nothing in myself that gives me greater ability to comprehend the truth. A sovereign God has revealed it to me. I have no other explanation than that. Ida Lineman was a very, very prominent biblical scholar in the 20th century, last half of the 20th century, and she's, she's still around today. But she was very prominent biblical scholar, German scholar. She had written many articles on Scripture, a question its historicity, especially as it related to the life of Jesus. And one day, she came to the realization that she wasn't getting it. She writes this, at that point in my life, God led me to vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. I heard their testimonies as they reported what God had done in their lives, and finally, God himself spoke to my heart by means of a Christian brother's words. By God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. She says, I can remember still for the first time when black was once more black and white was once more white, the two ceased to, be a, to pull together 
as an indistinguishable gray. And she began to recognize the truths of Scripture. And she repudiated all those things that she had written about Jesus before. Can you imagine Ida Lineman? Here's this woman that, that has PhDs and, and degree and, and recognitions beyond the PhD. She'd done all this academic work. She knew the text in, in ways that, that you and I do not. She knew things in, in different languages and, and written, uh, written scholarly articles and, and languages and, and read other languages. And she just knew lots of things about the text. Can you imagine the humility it took to say, I, I know nothing? And for her to be willing to go to people who had no degrees, who had no academic prestigious titles, and go to them and say, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't understand his word. Will you tell me the gospel? And then the humility to say, I've known nothing, and now I'm grasping these, these crucial truths of Scripture and placing my faith in Jesus Christ and repudiating everything I wrote before. Why does God make us do that? Because he must be preeminent. And as we contemplate the fact that we know certain truths about God, it should cause us to rejoice. Kierkegaard wrote several parables about Scripture. One story he tells is of a man who had a, a beloved in a different country, and she wrote him a love letter. And as she wrote him this love letter he received, and it was written in, in, different lang- in a different language. And so he looked at it, and he said, boy, I can't understand this. And so he grabbed a dictionary, and word by word he was translating as he translated it word by word, someone came along and said, ah, you're reading a letter from your beloved. And he said, if you call this reading, you mock me. In other words, he didn't know the language it was written in. He couldn't understand what she was writing him. And he was just piece by piece understanding glimpses of it. So it is true with God's word. If our hearts have not been radically transformed by the gospel, if God and his sovereignty hasn't allowed us to receive his truth, we cannot understand it. Kierkegaard tells another story of a king in a distant land who sent a decree to his subjects. And this decree was posted all across the kingdom, and people came and they read the decree, and they argued about what it meant and how to interpret it, and People came with various interpretations, and and they had great commentaries on what the decree said, and no one ever bothered to obey it. (laughs) That's our postmodern culture, isn't it? We live in a postmodern culture that reminds me of of what we read in Isaiah 29. In Isaiah 29, God has revealed truths to people, and as people respond to the vision of God, the Word of God, it says, God's word has become to them like words of a book that is sealed. And when men give it to one another and say, read this, they say, I can't, it's sealed. And they give the book to one who cannot read and say, read this. He says, I cannot read. That's our, this postmodern uh, pr- prison, as one writer has put it, our, this postmodern prison we've put ourselves in. Saying, I, I can't understand words and, and meaning and, and what is truth. And God's word has been given to us. We say, I can't understand it. I, I can't read it. 
God calls us to humble ourselves and rejoice that he's revealed his truth to us. You know, one of the greatest things that kills joy is pride, self-esteem, desire to exalt self. As we look at God's word, he calls, calls us to humble ourselves, to come to his word, to receive it, and to respond in joy. The last reason we see here to rejoice in a sovereign God, we should rejoice that our sovereign God allows us to witness the coming of his kingdom. Rejoice that our sovereign God allowed us to witness the coming of his kingdom. What does Jesus say next? Remember, there's the 72 there, and then he turns privately to the disciples, and he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. Many desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is telling them another aspect of rejoicing in God's sovereignty is that God has sovereignly placed them at a moment in time when they can hear and see and understand the coming kingdom of God. If you would, turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to close by looking at some verses in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is right before you get to the end of the Bible, just a couple uh, books before the end of the Bible, before the Johns, it's after Hebrews and James. 1 Peter chapter 1. As you think about rejoicing in a sovereign God and what effect in your life rejoicing should have, you say, okay, I'm rejoicing in a sovereign God. I'm, I'm rejoicing that he's written my name down in heaven. I, I'm rejoicing that he's revealed his, his truth to me and his son. Uh, I'm, I'm rejoicing that I, I live in this time and I can see his kingdom. And now what? what? What effect does that have? Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, these people who prophesied about the coming Messiah wanted to understand more fully what now you can understand. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that, you've now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, you should rejoice that God has revealed his gospel to you. And you have seen the beginning of the establishment of his kingdom that will last for eternity. You say, okay, now again, so what? What effect does that have on my life? As I think about God's sovereignty, is this some big intellectual thing for me to say, I now can talk about God's sovereignty at dinner parties? No, look what happens. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you was holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
If you call him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It goes on, I could go on that chapter forever. God in his sovereignty has revealed himself to us. And our response is a response of joy that produces holiness. Are you conducting yourselves with holiness, with lives that indicate that you have been specially called out by God, determined before the beginning of time by God to enter into relationship with him, and now are your lives reflecting that holiness of lives of worship and honor that God has called you to? That's what sovereignty and contemplating the sovereignty of God should produce within the human heart. Joy that produces obedience. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you for your sovereign work in our lives that reveals you to us. And we pray that you would give us hearts of obedience. Help us to be holy as you who have called us are holy. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.